I'm Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrecks. This week we have a very talented guest on the show. I know I've said that a few times already, but this guy has more talents than just musicality. He's also an engineer. His name is Mark Verbos. Mark's the guy that grew up not too far from me. He's also a Wisconsin boy, but uh, over the years he's found himself in places such as Berlin and currently New York. Uh, after he completed a degree in recording from Florida's Full Sail in 95, he became a recording engineer in Chicago for a while, and a few years later, he founded his own record label, Simple Answer. On top of that, he released a bunch of records for other various labels, including Knee Deep, Planet Rhythm, and DJX Upbeats, and, of course, Drop Bass Network. Since then... He went on to Berlin to try his hand at the DJ culture, went over pretty well for him, and a few years later, he opted to move home back to New York, where he started tinkering around with uh, electronics a bit more. One thing led to another, and now Mark is a proud owner of the company Verbos Electronics with his girl. Uh, he makes modular synthesizer modules. Um, they sound great. They look super awesome. And if you're a modular gear fan, you probably already know what he's up to. And if not, check it out. They're really great. we got a good show for you today. There's a variety of topics that we cover. Um, it's a little bit more serious than some of the other podcasts, but I'm really happy with this one. Uh, we're going to talk about his company and the steps that he took to get there and some of the challenges that he's faced with uh, when it comes to running it. We're going to talk about what it was like to be an expat in Berlin back before it was actually a cool thing to do and you know how it was then versus now, the benefits and the negative aspects of gentrification in today's Berlin. And we're also going to go on to talk about some other nerdy gear things. We're going to talk about some of the old party stories from back in the day. Uh, you know, this was recorded during the Berlin Atonal Festival earlier this summer, so we're going to have a quick chat about what we thought about that, what he was up to there, who he ran into, and how things like this are really important for the scene these days. I had a good time with this chat, and I know he did too. We'd love to hear from you if, if you think that it was a good show or if you think we're doing terrible jobs at our respective positions. Uh, I hope they're good. Anyway, send us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy the interview. Yeah, so go on about those days, though. Oh, well, uh, what I was trying to say is that it's, it's important to imagine that, that in 92 or 93, there wasn't even a record store. In, mm -hmm. in, I mean, there was Atomic, which was like a alternative rock like indie type store but they they didn't have like techno records so the only way to get them would be to to order them directly off the watts list which is especially funny because that means you're looking at these ridiculous descriptions mm -hmm. of the records and trying to base your choices on yeah you couldn't like, listen to see what it was two sentences of nonsense that you know, try try writing like a 200 descriptions every week yeah. and see how you know how long it takes you to turn into like you know like a, a parrot who's just putting totally. out the same crap over and well, over again it's funny because hard wax um you know they still get a lot of shit for their descriptions on the website and some of them are are kind of ridiculous but some of them are exactly on the money 
And uh, I think it was DJ Pete maybe that was saying, you know, the reason it's done this way is because, or, no, I think it was Torsten. He was saying, like, look, back in the day when you had, like you said, when you're going through that catalog, you got to be precise and is, you know, perfect as possible to explain it. And so that's kind of how they did it. And, oh, I would laugh, like, all the time about the um, the Neutron list because I would say, oh, more Brill mono tracks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was doing the the record shopping for, um, well, it was Vital Vinyl in Minneapolis. I don't know if you ever went there before it closed. I think I did. Yeah, I was doing the buying the techno records. And fortunately for me, by that point, um, you know, the internet was already around, so you could kind of hear things. And since I was getting tracks, I knew some of these people, I knew what was coming. But they would, you know, some of those descriptions were just borderline ridiculous because. It's the same as reading promo sheets where people try to talk about, like, you know, exhilarating sob, uh, note, sawtooth, bass lines, and shit. It's like, whatever, man. The emotional breakdown. Yeah. So, um, I guess moving on here, you're back in town tonight. Tonight you're at Trezor. Uh, the festival is Berlin. For Americans, it's atonal. Yeah. But there's so many different pronunciations I've heard this week. It's well, the Germans say atonal. Yeah. But it's pretty... It's pretty the same word. So. Yeah. <laughs> I just find it... I'm kind of curious how many times I can hear it pronounced differently. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so for those of you that don't know, it's a festival that's focused more on, you know, I guess they would say more darker shades of music that's like more atmospheric ambience a little bit more experimental noise based definitely uh, a lot of drone walls yeah exactly and i mean the reality is that venue is incredible i i think there's no better place to go to something like that yeah if for people who are into the the darker side of um kind of like a instrumental goth whatever uh drone noise kind of scene it's pretty much the the best event Definitely. in the world I, I don't even know of any other event that curates such a steady list i mean of course they got techno like tonight you're doing trezor basement and even well tonight even is a bit less four to the floor but um you know for the most part the entire festival is i haven't heard any drums played yet i didn't go last night but uh well what they have well last night they didn't have the trezor globus open yeah. but um what they have in in the the clubs, not in the the main uh, hall space, whatever mm-hmm. the warehouse is, generally house and techno and what have you, some kind of more dance music. But all the stuff that's been in the the two areas in the um, the main hall has been drones or ambient noise mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm a I'm a kind of a nerd, music nerd, so I like a lot of this stuff, and I'm really excited because normally around August, I traditionally take a trip back to the United States, see my family and all that, and this time I'm actually here, so I'm really excited to see some of it. And as much as I love it, I can only handle it in doses because some of it does get really dark and really intense, and I'm like, okay, I need to, I need a break. You know what I mean? Well, but, the, the people are, are definitely less fun than they are in the club part of it because... Yeah, they were sitting on the floor, and at one point, um, I was talking to um, Patrick from uh, one of the guys from uh, uh, Alex Four, the distribution that uh, is the distribution branch of Schneider's Laden, and they're running a, a like a second room or not second, a fifth room 
uh, where they have some modular synths and they're showing off this stuff. Yeah, it's a so dope room too. It's great. But he and I were talking while uh, one of the like performances was going on, and somebody came over and said, "Can you please shut up? I can hear you talking." Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> so, God forbid I wanted to go out and have yeah, a drink. Yeah, exactly. Know? So, I mean, and, and of course it's very loud, so it isn't as though um, it's not much louder than our voices, but I guess the nature of that kind of music is that it doesn't, it doesn't um, overshadow the conversation as much oh, totally. as like something with a lot of you know, pounding in it. Exactly. I mean, it's it's a different thing. I mean, it's not just a, a bunch of concerts. The whole thing is like an artistic concept. And with that comes um, some really interesting people, some really pretentious people, um, a lot of wild clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, definitely shit. something we noticed is that <laughs> we were uh, able to pick out who was uh, here for the fest on the street, just exactly. by you know their weird like Japanese drop crotch yeah. pants and uh, <laughs> Berlin Fashion Week, <laughs> exactly. But uh, so tonight you're playing at Trezor. When's the last time you played there? Uh, I've actually never played in the 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 new Trezor, the new one, but yeah. the old one you did. Right? Uh, yeah, well, I said to Dimitri yesterday, I played in the real one five times, <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, I. I I think the last time I played the the you know the original space was like 2004. That's yeah, right before it closed. I yeah. guess. I well, I was living here from um, 2000 to 2003 full time, mm-hmm. and I still came back you know a few times a year after the, after that for the next you know few years, and uh, so I still would you know throw in a gig here or there when I was totally. Over. Yeah, I mean, because you were just at Berghain, I don't know, this winter was it maybe? April. April? Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't so far ago. And um, yeah, it's nice that you're back already, and both are live shows, right? They're both live? Yeah, or? these days it's all I'm doing, because, um, I don't know, maybe nobody who's listening to this even knows, but uh, a couple of years ago I, I launched a, a synthesizer brand of my own that are uh, Euro rack format, modular, mm-hmm. and all my designs. So since that time, I'm only doing live shows using my instrument. And yeah. in a way, when I started the brand, I thought that that was like admitting defeat on my music career and finally putting the the, yeah. the last nail in the coffin. But that was completely the opposite of what I, what yeah, happened. I mean, it seems like a, a revitalizer. Like yeah, it, well, I think it it uh, was like a. a a much needed like shake up to what I was doing and what I was feeling about like my music. I feel now really inspired and really excited to play. Whereas for, for some time I was feeling really down on the whole thing. So, well, when, when you took off from Berlin, that was really the start of the whole minimal period too. Yeah. Which wasn't really what I was into. And the, the, electro clash rise was like in full swing when i was that was you know the clubs like uh vmf and um watergate wasn't there yet it was uh what else was there that cookies was a big Mm -hmm. spot and these were all like the opposite of what i liked you know it was like places with a door policy with expensive drinks where like fashion was really important and to me the whole reason that that Berlin was appealing was because it was like, like the gay punk rock version of techno. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It definitely. Um, I mean, it's still like that to this day. You have like 
you know, your your bigger clubs like you mentioned, like Watergate, Resort, Burghain, uh Stapa, that just closed though. Places like that where um I don't know. I get. I don't. I don't know what you'd call it, because I. I don't like to put things in boxes, because then it assumes that one's better than the other. But some say those are like the mega clubs or the tourist clubs or something, and real Germans don't go there, which is is bullshit. Because there's a lot of Germans that go there, and um, but there's there's also a lot of these more like uh, smaller, like uh, more East Berlin focused clubs, kind of what you mentioned, like that are definitely more dirty. They're not worried about having a function one system or anything like that. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's room for all of it. And it's it's really interesting to see just looking at the lineups. It's not even necessarily whether the lineups are better or worse. It's just some guys you'll only see playing at these clubs. And Well, there's a lot know. of territorialism. Like a, a certain person who I will leave out of this <laughs> said to me, I wasn't welcome to play at this festival because I, I'm a resident at Bergheim. So yeah. there's definitely a thing where... The the people from Tresor say, oh, Bergheim. And the people from, uh, from Bergheim feel the same way. But, yeah. I mean, you ha- have to remember also that this is, it's a business for them. And oh, they, yeah. And they have to cultivate their philosophy and their image in order to to create their their crowd and their, you know. You know, and given the climate, I think, you know, well, both of those clubs, they do a really good job still because it's really hard for them to be in their position and keep up the tenacity that they maintain, like Trezor, you know, they have perhaps more relaxed door policy, but it's still an amazing club. I mean, you've been down in the basement. I don't yeah. know what it's like compared to the old one. I actually got the old one, but I never got in. Well, and, I, uh, I mean, to put it simply, there has never been, nor will there ever be a better techno club than the original dress. Yeah, that, but that's, that, that that's just a singular vision. I mean, it it wouldn't be it wouldn't be wise for them to try to imitate what they had before you never should so what they're doing now is a bit different than what they did back then but it's also really cool so. yeah i mean it, it's just different times you know i remember when the nutrizor first opened it had a little bit of a rough time getting off the ground in some people's eyes and even in the past well i moved here 4 or 5 years ago it's changed a lot since then i mean it's made so much progress like the sound system's amazing now the globus room lift it kind of left me a little left a little be desired and now it's a really great room the lineups are fantastic lineups um you know i think they're doing a great thing and this festival is huge too you know what i mean it's yeah, uh it's spectacular there's nobody else i mean there's there's like samuel carriage he does his like uh what i believe it's the contort parties there's people that are pushing this sound in town but not at the level that they are so I hats off to everybody around here because they're still making it happen in some way, you know. Yeah, well, and and we're living in a really um, strange time for for Berlin techno clubs because now the whole world is on to this. So everyone in the world is either going to move here or going to do an imitation of what's going on here. So mm-hmm. you know, each city has their like one club who thinks that they're the like, you know. Mm. fill-in-the-blank version of Berghain or whatever, mm. and that, they, and they totally missed the point because these places are really doing doing it right. I mean, what's so cool about the, the the economics of Berlin is that it's still 
a place with a really high unemployment rate. It's still a mm-hmm. place that is incredibly cheap. I mean, it's a lot more expensive now than it was when I was living here. Big time. Like three times as much. Right. But it's still way cheaper than the equivalent city in another country. Yeah. And it's a place where, you know, they if if they wanted to, they have a captive audience. They could gouge you for drinks, but they don't. You totally. know, the drink, the, a beer in, in these clubs well, is like three euro. You let know, me tell you, though, if you if you go out in Berlin and you make a night of it, it still gets real expensive. I, I've donated. Well, you don't live in New York, you know. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Like, what what you'd spend in maybe an hour or two in New York is uh, the course of a night in Berlin. But, but part, of the, part of the interesting thing about that is that, you know, the... You know, like a, a foreigner living here making international money. Like if you're out of town every week DJing somewhere, you're getting paid the same amount that you would get paid in another city because you're on the road all the time. Mm-hmm. But you're living somewhere where it's much cheaper. So mm-hmm. you you're not part of like the the raw economics of Berlin. You know, like people who have to go out and make a living, like you know, working somewhere here don't have a lot of money like it it doesn't seem really cheap to them it's a huge it's a huge um topic right now and you know i'm living uh well it's technically neukölln now but it's on the border and you know i there's protests every day about something but right now or for the last few years the rent prices have been insane i think in the last four or five years the prices have increased 30 percent so basically you know, for a person that's a foreigner that's coming in to make money here, reality is they probably moved in to, like, because they have a good job, whether it's in the tech startup or they're a DJ or a painter or something, so they can get by. But some of these people that, you know, have a family that live in a two-bedroom house or a flat and, uh, you know, they make eight bucks an hour, it's it's totally unaffordable now, and it's pushing people out. But as much as that's terrible, it's almost inevitable but you know nobody told them that and it still has a long way to go before it reaches london or paris or new york proportions so um my point is just that something a a place as legendary as a a berghain or a dressor or something like that has like a tourist destination element to it i mean Mm -hmm. the people are coming from all over the world and that's like where they're headed to so they could, you know, treat you like you're going to Disneyland and, mm-hmm. you know, charge you a lot of money to get in and totally. a lot of money for drinks and whatever. But, you know, you, you can't get into a club with a, with a great lineup for 15 bucks in New York. It just doesn't it's happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be out of the question for that. For, first of all, there would never be a lineup like, you know, when I played at Berghain, it was like all it was was headliners. I couldn't even believe it. Um, uh, uh Dave Sumner Function was playing downstairs with me, and upstairs, Ian Pooley, Josh Wink, mm-hmm. and Steve Bug were playing. You know, it's just uh, ridiculous. It's like fourteen bucks or something. Yeah, you know? and and if that party would ever happen in New York, which it wouldn't, but if it did, it would be like seventy dollars to get in. Well, the other important thing to remember is because Berlin has this kind of weird financial bubble stasis type thing, they also are able to get artists to come down a lot on their prices. And everybody wants to come through. Exactly. I mean, New York for years has like used that that mm-hmm. everybody who you know European comes to, to to the United States and they'll play in New York for like a to quarter sh- of their so fee just shopping. so they can hang out yeah. for a few days in New York. So Berlin has that going for it too. And um, a lot of the, the the clubs that have been around Berlin for a long time 
are all notorious for being really, really cheap about what they're willing to pay. And the reason that they're like that is because they refuse to raise their prices to, you know, Mm -hmm. accommodate, you know, Josh Wink's fee. You know, I I don't know what he was paid, but, you know, I'm assuming it was significantly lower than he would have gotten in Paris or whatever. Could be. You never know. But, I mean, so... You're aware of the climate. You were here for three, four years, uh, about 15 years ago. Obviously, the city has changed leaps and bounds. I came here my first time in 2002, and since then I've watched it just completely change into something different. So when you first came back was – well, you came back when you uh, started the company and you were pushing the modules here, right? Yeah, I took um, – from about 2009 mm-hmm. until uh, – 2013 when i when i started the company i didn't come to berlin at all so that was a a, a much more significant okay. change during that That's block right. of like you four were or five coming years. off and on after that yeah so now since i since i've been coming for like the uh, music mesa and frankfurt mm-hmm. trade show and uh alex four is distributing my product in europe so berlin is once again a kind of home base for me um but during that that uh, four or five year period that I didn't come here, that was really noticeable change in what was happening here. Oh yeah, and um, the the biggest change from the time well, I first came in ninety eight, and the biggest difference between nineteen ninety eight and twenty fifteen in Berlin is that now the whole place is full of Americans. Which, Everybody speaks English. Yeah, which is, I was actually having this conversation with uh, with somebody last night about how a big portion of what it is to to travel the world is ending up in complicated situations because the culture and the language are different than what you're used mm-hmm. to. And when you take that away, when you when you turn Berlin into um, New York or San Francisco or whatever it is. Um, you take away a lot of its Berlinness. I mean, to me, it's a bum out to see to see it overtaken by foreigners. Mm-hmm. But y- you can't stop progress. Yeah, and it, it's, it's not inevitable. that it's a it's not that it's a worse place. It's that it to- it's a totally different place. Mm-hmm. You know, this topic comes up a lot every time you go out to the bar. You talk to people who are visiting or people living here, and the, the reality is, is and I guess the keyword is gentrification. It's yeah. arrived here. There's people on the segways and stuff, and People get so upset, and I say, look, you're living in a big city. Gentrification is unavoidable in any place. It's how you handle it is what's going to determine how the city is. Yeah, you and it's, I mean? it's not fair. Uh, a lot of people in, uh, in, who are here from New York or who are in New York and talk about here will say that Berlin is turning into Brooklyn. But I don't think that that's fair because it seems like everywhere is turning into Brooklyn if that's your your totally. way of measuring it because everywhere has like artisanal cheese shops and like uh you know yeah all got, the hipster like quote a unquote barber stuff. shop uh you know get your uh your mustache waxed shops and like all this kind of stuff i mean they have those in stockholm and they have those in london it's and everywhere have, and, it's, and they even have them in places that aren't even like a part of this you know they have them in milwaukee yeah, you know? yeah. milwaukee's huge for that <laughs> yeah. now i was just in houston they have a lot of great restaurants and everything like that opening there and i mean the reality is um 
you know, goddamn people for enjoying good food or wanting to take an interest in where it comes from. You know, I find it funny. Like one guy, well, I forget one comic was like, I hate hipsters until it's time to eat. And that like <laughs> makes perfect sense, you know? Yeah. Well, so, definitely there's no, in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with like foodie culture or, um, you know, plenty of things that that are wrapped up in the gentrification are, are, are actually nice things in certain that's ways. That's what I'm getting at, yeah. But then there are parts of it that, I mean, nobody ever self-applies the term hipster. This is like a, a you know derogatory term that we use to describe people we yeah, don't I like. Yeah, I actually don't like it, personally. I, I'm not crazy about it myself, but I just think that that, you know, it's not anything that we can identify as hipster isn't necessarily a bad thing. So... I don't really have any need for, um, you know, certain things that are a part of that. But, sure. but the, the food, you know, and uh, a nice uh, fancy cocktail is fine with me. And Yeah, I mean, and that's what's rolling in here. And people get upset about it. And it's like, well, it's the money. And there's like crazy different restaurants and cocktail places and, and clothing shops. And I'm like, look, you don't have to go to this stuff. There's plenty of places you can go to that still retain the same charm that Berlin had 15 years ago. You know, yeah, that's true. But, uh, uh, you know, when the, the grouchy side of, of me comes out is when when I start to feel like um, like Berlin was my place that I discovered mm-hmm. and going to fuck all these people for taking my place away from me. You yeah, know? no, I, I kind of feel that way. Even with going out to uh, some club nights and parties and stuff here, um, like on one hand, I really want these people to enjoy it. Like for them, it's the greatest night of their life. And for me, I'm like, I remember it a different way and it's, yeah, exactly. the magic is lost, but it's just forced me to realize like you should never take any moments with a grain of salt. You know what I mean? Like whether it's a, a store that pops up or a trip you're on or a night you're out on, like you got to appreciate it cause that's not going to last. Yeah. I think that that's really the, the thing we can learn about, you know, all of our experiences, you know, as we get old, we can look back at things that happened a long time ago that were really amazing. And I'm not certain that in the moment I really looked around and thought, maybe this will all be gone soon. You know, I just carelessly just went through it all thinking that, you know, actually the good times were the time right before Mm -hmm. all the time thinking that we're living in the post everything era. Mm -hmm. Now I look back and, you know, like, Coming to Berlin, I thought I was coming to Berlin too late, you know, in 98. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, that's the thing. Everybody says that it's, you know, that's over. It was the same in the States. They would say, oh, yeah, the raves were over in 94. Or whatever, yeah, you know? exactly. And the, the bummer about it is that, like, really amazing things were happening all the time. But I was unable to enjoy those things while they were happening because I was convinced that it was, like, second best to something that happened before, which may or may not have been true. I mean... Uh, I don't know, when you're talking to Kurt, I don't know if you, if you got to see any of the videos. He has videos that he made at uh, all the raves that they did in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I a couple of times watched clips from, you know, like, Dissension or something. And I have mm-hmm. this in my mind, you know, this party in 94 and in a warehouse and everything about it is perfect. Yeah, And I'm horrified when I see that video about how ridiculous the people look how terrible the music sounds, how yeah. like everything about it is not nearly as good as it is in my memory. You That's know? why you should never record things. People <laughs> yeah. always ask me, did you record your set? Did you, you know, it's like, no. <laughs> exactly. And um, I mean, it's because it's, you know, I, I just played a gig a, a few weekends ago in Honduras on an island and 
it was one of the trippiest, headiest sets that I've played in probably a few years. And I didn't record it. I'm like, man, I really wish I would have recorded it. But I'm glad that I didn't because now it just exists in my mind as something that was really wild. And if I listen to the recording, I'd probably be like, well, maybe maybe yeah, it wasn't. I, I couldn't agree more. The, oh, and now as it relates to like playing live shows, and I am you know, I make a point of improvising it all and doing it all unique each time. So in that respect, I think some people think that um, getting a recording would be more important because it really will be gone as soon as it's mm-hmm. finished. But I think that that even more, I mean, I was delighted by Berghain making such a big deal about how no, mm-hmm. not just no pictures. People are obsessed with the no pictures thing. Yeah, no no recordings. recordings allowed. And I think that that's so cool because in that moment, you know, the people who were there with me, we share this memory of what totally. it was. And that is our reality. And we don't have to go back and, pick it apart and down the road somewhere think about how, you know, we must have been kind of stupid in those days because we thought this was good. I mean, yeah. it's it's real to me. It's all about the immediate right now because, I mean, it's like if you retell the same joke twice in a row, you've already, the second time around it's not as funny. It might still be funny, but it, it, you've kind of lost it in a way. And it's the same with recordings. And I'm, you know, I, I try to record some of my sets when I'm on the road purely just for me because... Um, I want to hear like what worked kind of just because I'm professional about it. I like to keep up on myself and, and push it, but I don't like to put so many sets out because not only do people get too analytical about it, but yeah, it's, it's all about being in the moment with this music. And I think that right now with so much, uh, they call them like internet ravers or the critics and stuff like that. Ah. It's, you know, of course the music has taken a really interesting turn because it's not so much about being in the moment anymore it's about also podcasts and you know yeah other elements to that yeah but so much for me so much of the 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 idea of doing like a a set or a performance or whatever so much of it is about that moment and about the way that i experience that moment and the people who are there mm-hmm. are interacting with it that the idea of doing a performance like in you know, like here in, mm-hmm. <laughs> to tape or, you know, to, you know, hard disk to give it to the world. Like, I, I don't really, that's not something that I want to do because it it isn't anything. I mean, I don't know if this is like an old world kind of like I don't think artist so. thing to think that if you're not performing it for someone, then you're not really performing it. You know, it's like it doesn't exist unless it's being um you know, like interacted with. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely one of those um, more. It's not a intangible, but like one of those topics where it's kind of up for opinion on you know what you think about it. But one thing I could say about that, for example, is I kind of it's similar for me for digital pictures versus photography, um, and I kind of put sets in the same way. Like one of your sets will realistically, well, not for sure, but at one point, one of your newer live sets might get out whether it's through yourself or a bootleg mix or something and that'll be like the set that's on the internet and um i think you know it's it's interesting because those can be kind of cool because it's like the only kind of taste you get of it but there's not say 10 of them out there or 15 sets whereas it's the same thing with digital photography you know if you go through the box and you got pictures of your grandparents or something there's like what three pictures maybe especially well these days, grandparents are younger, but, you know, like, your grandparents, my grandparents, since they didn't take so many pictures, you got, you know, 
one picture of your grandmother and like that means a lot because that's the only one there is now with digital pictures uh you can have 400 of them and they're not quite as important because there's so many to pick from right does that make sense yeah and i think that i think that uh, people i mean probably you and me too are forfeiting the moment in order to make a picture or a, a recording in that moment rather than actually being a part of that moment they're trying to archive it so that in the future sometime they can look back at it mm-hmm. which i think that actually enjoying the moment is more important than than creating a keepsake of it because totally. because the memory is a much better keepsake than the the picture or whatever it's never going to translate yeah, but yeah. we're also wrapped up in this bullshit of like trying to get the the best thing onto instagram so that we can you know ha- mm-hmm. get as many likes as possible yeah and i mean i think anybody that has an account you know, on a service like Instagram or Twitter or something can relate that in some point, like, of course, whatever you put up, you want it to be well received. You yeah. know what I mean? So I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody yeah. else. I'm just saying that it's a, it's a poisonous, um, a poisonous thing for, for ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not trying to tell somebody else what they should do, but I think that I actually am much happier when I absorb things, you know, like rather than trying to, to capture them. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, what's what's nice is like for me, I can go out, whether it doesn't matter where I'm in the world, and say I go out for a night, whether it's for a dinner or a party, it doesn't matter. But I'm out and about, and I'm enjoying the moment, and I'm not trying to capture it with a camera or a recording or a video. And then I I treat it as such. And then you know, six months down the road, somebody shows a picture on their phone that they just happen to have of that, and then you're like, that's awesome because that's a really cool picture or whatever. I like it when those kind of moments come back to you later when you weren't really expecting it. It's like the one little surprise part of it. Well, and it, hopefully that picture you didn't even realize was being taken. Well, that's or, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then it's like, actually candid. It's, it, it's candid. It <laughs> captures the moment, and you weren't responsible for it. That's, that's cool. So I'm not even saying that like people should never take pictures or try to record sets because it is cool to have mementos of things just that shouldn't be the focal point is all you know yeah well if you're more concerned with uh making something that's going to sound good on a recording versus like sound like going to work for the situation that you're in that's that's tough but i mean i guess in a way that they're like this whole boiler room thing which Mm. never it doesn't really make sense to me but it's like a really big thing now and it's like it's a party but it's really just about the recording or about the broadcast but it's yeah. like a strange thing where like people are gathering because this recording is being made it's almost like the recording is more important than the party well i i think they've always kind of i mean that's that's not what they've said uh directly out of their mouths but verbatim that's been the idea like they always intended to just kind of stream it for people that couldn't get to a party and on one hand, while I'm not a major fan of the the format, um, I get it because I was a guy that worked in corporate in the United States, and it'd be Tuesday morning at 11 a.m. or 10 a.m., and you're just sitting there clicking on the computer and just doing the mind-numbing work, and you got, if you're lucky, you can have some earbuds in to listen to whatever you want. And I think in that aspect, it'd be really cool to click on the computer. And while you're doing your spreadsheets or whatever, you're like, oh, man, that's what's going on in Berlin or London. Or, you know what I mean? You get a taste of something because not a lot of people that, can afford to come over the pond and catch a course. party. And I mean, but, you, know, as, uh, you know, as kids living in Wisconsin, 
you know, we have <laughs> we have plenty of perspective on uh, the feeling that we're not in the place where it's happening, you know, or like yeah. being really far away from the action. Um, and I, I can see the appeal of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, many, many years ago, I had a, a, a job in uh, technical support for an internet service provider. And, mm-hmm. um, and that was a, a, you know, a nightmarish job. But the whole time I was there, I was on the like, you know, uh, chat thing with like yeah, exactly. ravers or whatever, you know, I mean, you know, the, Part of the reason that my labels kind of took off is because I, I ran them at the same time as I was at the office doing stuff. I had the, the chat program open. I was running two businesses at once. You know, of course, I don't want the employers to know that, but yeah. now I don't give a shit. I haven't yeah. them in 10 years. <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean? So it was, it was one of those situations where, um, you know, you're always kind of like, oh, man, I wish I could uh, – I wonder what it'd be like to go to a party in whatever city they're doing the boiler room in this week. And so I totally get that aspect. On the other part of it, I am one of the guys that's very supportive of the no photos, no videos, just close your eyes and remember the moment. I did a boiler room. Um, It was really, I wasn't so comfortable at that point. I wasn't really well prepared. Were, were there all the like girls dancing, like bumping into you while you're trying to DJ? Like they are in all those videos. <laughs> I wish, but um, I mean, the thing was, is it's like uh, I'm I'm not really good on the camera to begin with. I'm not even really good on the microphone. So for me to be doing a podcast now is a bit strange. So I I think I slammed like two uh, whiskeys on the rocks in 20 minutes or something. And in the chat, they're like, "Man, that guy can drink." But I I just so. The whole thing for me was a bit uncomfortable. I enjoyed it, and I ended up, I don't know, I got a handful of bookings out of it. It was kind of a good deal. But, yeah, it, it's definitely a strange thing, and I I don't think it's going to go away because I see some um, I see some imitators popping up. But it's also, you know, podcasts. I remember when those came out, like the Chris Liebing podcast, CLR, that was a big thing. I think it started in 2007 or eight, And, I mean... It used to be where if I did one record and one podcast for him in a year, like my schedule is completely full. Like it had such a massive impact. It was kind of like people going on Johnny Carson or something. Like if you yeah. made it, like you literally a change for you overnight. And nowadays, uh, podcasts don't really mean shit, you know. And I, I, I think eventually these streaming video things will be the same. Well, definitely, if there are so many of them that it's. Yeah. I mean, if there are. It's just Johnny Carson, then it really means a lot. Yeah, but if yeah. there are, you know, it's Johnny Carson and David Letterman and, um, you know, yeah, down exactly. the line, whatever, when there are 15 shows, then each one no longer, you know, it's dividing the, the up the same number less. of viewers yeah. <laughs> into all these different places. But, I mean, how does, how does the, the industry of techno really work? I mean... Is, do you feel right like... Right now it's on hype, but... Yeah, but I mean, do you... Uh, and I don't have the answer. This is more yeah. just like a theoretical thing, but like, do you actually see trackable interaction? Like, I put out this record and then this happened. You know, like, to me, it's like a mm. big haze where you're not really... You're not really selling a record. You're like selling an idea. You know, like, you don't... You don't have like hit songs in techno it's, it's really. It's a business you know? card of sorts, I think. Yeah, you're just really like spreading your name out there and you're spreading the idea of what your sound is overall mm-hmm. and I mean, of course there are, you can tell me but examples of, you know, well this one track, you know, was a massive breakthrough and you know. That's always going to be the case. But but 
most artists, you know, like you and I don't have the like record that sold 50,000 copies. So the, so overall, like when, when I have fans, like if I, if I go to some place that I've never been before and I meet some new people and they tell me they're a fan of, of my music, they're not talking about like this one record. They're talking about like, overall. I've been buying your records since you started. I have a collection of them. Mm-hmm. So it's more like a big picture thing, which makes it so much harder to track like the effect of any one thing. It's, it's impossible. It used to be back in the day, if you put out a record or two or something, you can get some gigs and that's that. And today it's like, you know, you got to do the records and you got to do the podcast. And there's no guarantee that there's no right way to do it. There's some guys who will put out one big record a year. And then they tour for a year. There's and then you got other guys like uh, David Truncate in, in L.A. He's one of the most prolific producers in the states right now. I mean, well, in the past six months, maybe not so much, but he'll do three, four records a year, a bunch of remixes, and you know, so, so some guys are just consistent, and they, you know, the name keeps up. There's no, there's no right or wrong way. And then uh, some people don't do anything, and just like resident advisors, like okay, you're a god now, and now their schedule's big. Yeah, so, well, that's an interesting thing, too, because I, I, for years, have been fascinated by the, the guys who are able to become really popular DJs, mm-hmm. but never actually have a career making music. So mm-hmm. how would they ever get in the position to become known in the first place? You know, like, yeah, and I'm, I don't, there's no right or wrong. It's just, it, it's a really strange thing. It's really hard to navigate, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to say what works and what doesn't work because everything you tell me doesn't Never, work. I'll yeah. give you an example of somebody who's done it and it's working for them. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I get that question every week. Sometimes it's from guys who are just aspiring to put out a record. Sometimes it's guys that have been doing it for 20 years and they're like, I don't know what to do. And I'm saying, you know, I'm sitting in the chair right now and, you know, my schedule is decent. I have a nice place and everything, but I have no fucking clue how I'm still going right now because I'm not putting out as much music as I could be. That's about to change. And even then, I'm not really striving to put out hit records. You know, like, I have no heat on me, so, like, but, there's no hype, but I somehow make it work, you know? So, yeah, but also you're, you're, you're working in a genre that doesn't really have a hit. Like, it doesn't, it's no such thing as a hit in the kind of music that you do, you know? And yeah. I don't mean that, like, that things don't sell a lot. I mean that the, the, the music is, by design, it doesn't have, like, a catchy melody or a hook mm-hmm. or something. It's, it's much more, um, it's much more of a big picture thing. Like I, I feel like if you, if you made vocal house music, then it's really like track by track is very mm-hmm. like clear, like which ones worked because you're going to, people are going to talk about this track oh, I mean, yeah. in, in, in the techno world. Most people don't even know the names of the tracks, well, you know. I <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't remember that like the names of my own tracks. So yeah. it's like it's much more like big picture. It's like you know, Dustin's on. Mm-hmm. I like that guy. I have a bunch of his records. That's yeah, yeah, more exactly. the way it goes. And you know, it's especially now with digital. Yeah, and and I think that that is is a a big portion of why it's so much more abstract. Like it's, you know, I, I, I think of it as like careerless, you know, it's like, there's no real, there, there's no way to like really know what to do. You just kind of, mm-hmm. you, you, you just have to keep going in mm-hmm. whatever that means, you know, like just keep doing stuff, whatever yeah. it is. And, 
you know, pick the things that, that seem to work for you and, you know, go after it. And when kids or maybe not kids, you're right. Like maybe people who have some experience when they say to me, how, you know, I want to put out records. How did you do that? Or Mm -hmm. how did you get to be in this place or that place? Or how did, and the answer is I got really fucking lucky. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I worked my ass off trying to be good at what I do, but there, that doesn't mean that you're going to get anywhere because you know they say who's the best DJ, who's the best techno DJ in the world, and I'm like probably somebody who doesn't get booked at all because yeah. he's spending all of his time actually like learning to be good. That's it, you know. Like I, I was just telling uh, Mo Drumcell the other day, I forget who we were talking about. And I said honestly, right now, I don't have any interest in hearing any DJ that plays more than like six to eight times a month because the reality is, while they probably can do a great set. They're not home enough to dig through records and take in other influences and inspiration. I mean, the reality is, is, yeah, if you're playing 17 gigs a month, you're on the road, you're at a lot of parties, but you're not necessarily sitting there watching the other DJs having a drink and getting in the party. You play your set you, and you get out. So really, these guys that are on the road, they hear less about what's going on than almost anybody. And the guys that are playing anywhere from two to five, six shows a month, those are the guys that have the time to sit home and they've, they're kind of going through everything and they're, they're, they're eager, you know what I mean? And well, I don't understand. I mean, I guess the, the, re, the cruel reality is that the guys who are playing that much, they're playing every few days. And it's the same deal. They're, those, those guys can't even really be making their own music if they have a lot of records coming out mm-hmm. because they're never home. I mean, I guess you could have guys who spend uh, a month or two pumping out music mm-hmm. and then go on the road for the rest of the year and don't, and you know tour mm-hmm. on that release but also i think that's more like a, a like a rock band way of doing things mm-hmm. and there are guys who who do that like the you know real superstar guys who you know push albums and then you know just yeah. ride on it but for me if even being away every week it, it just makes it impossible for me to like get anything done at home because I spend like a few days, you know, getting ready to go out of town, a few days like winding down from being out of town and, and a few days out of town. So it's like, you know, I have one day in the middle of the week that I actually get anything done. Totally. And so, yeah, there's no way, there's no way that you could continue to be like in, inspired and invested in the thing if you were doing it that yeah. much. And that's that's not even uh, saying it in a negative way. That's just an honest way that, hey, man, at anybody's level, that it would be difficult. But, I mean, I guess that's a good segue, and let's change gears a bit because you say that it's, it's really time-consuming to be able to do what you want to do with whether it's being a DJ or producer. And on top of, you know, doing gigs and stuff now, you did start Verbose Electronics. I mean, how much time does that take up? I mean, all, all of it. Yeah. But, but the thing is that, <clears throat> that now I, I'm free, you know, like, like you were saying before, there's, like, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Here. It's like now my focus is on making my synth brand work, and I'm able to treat my music as something that doesn't need to put food on the table. Now yeah. I can treat my music as just do what I want Completely and don't honest. care about like if it makes money or if it builds a career. It's really just about doing, you know, part of it is that I have a, an obligation to to show that my instruments can be used to make music, mm-hmm. but also just that 
I'm able to treat it like the art that I want it to be rather than the business because I've had this theory for a long time that um, that a lot of people that I met in Europe were really good at um, committing, like really good at every day working on music the whole day and making music that sounded like what was coming out right now, like mm. really being current and really being a part of it. A studio engineer, basically. Yeah, but like really professional and committed. Mm-hmm. And the Americans that I've known were always like, only able to make their sound and only able to like, mm-hmm. so when the, when tides would turn, like when suddenly minimal became really popular, all the guys that, you know, were in Berlin before that all were minimal guys now. Cause that's, what's the, like the popular thing and they're able to do it. And I, I'm, you know, as an American, I'm cursed with, with only the ability to do that, which I actually care about, yeah. which means that it's not possible for me it's not possible for me to, to get into this frame of mind where, well, it's my job to yeah. make, you know, 10 records a year and um, always keep the system. You know, some of these, like the, the more professional guys, their entire year is mapped out at the beginning of the year with all of the, like, different places that they have to do their, you know, like, cycle. They play the same festivals in the summer and they play, this like, all these clubs where they have, like, three month uh, every third month residency or whatever like constantly like churning out work and it's all like really professionally organized and consistent Mm -hmm. that has never been my life yeah so so for me that that rat race of of like techno lifestyle like i gotta play more gigs so i can make more records so i can get more gigs so i can make more records so you know ah you know i would like to maybe make one record that I like rather than like feeling obligated to make five so I can keep in the game. It's, I mean, it's kind of a rat race and honestly, you know, living in Berlin, especially it's really easy to get caught up in that. I mean, I did to some degree, not so bad because like you said, coming from the States, you grow up with this kind of, you know, you have to search this music out. So you, it's really hard to go into it with the studio engineer job mindset like you said because you start off as a fan and you'll always have that kind of passion for it um but you know living here in town you know i go to the grocery store and i can run into like ricardo villa lobos or something <laughs> yeah. like you're, yeah. you, you know you're at the nerve center and there's always something coming at you and just when you get comfortable and you think everything's good you meet someone for dinner and they're like you find out like this guy's making how much money yeah. Or like you know what I mean? Then then the wheels start turning, and then then you're like, well, why why aren't why am I not doing this? Or you know? And oh, well, so, the, the jealousy and well, it's not even a jealousy thing. It's just a like envy, a, 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 whatever envy, the, fairness, yeah. whatever you want. Well, to all use. Of, all of that is is also like I, I think really damaging, and I've felt it before too. I mean, I um you know long time ago would would in my mind get wrapped up in the wait how old is that guy mm-hmm. you know like i'd be like wait adam bears the same age as me so <laughs> i should be like you know on because we started around the same time yeah. i should be on the same level as him and i watched you know guys like like you know who i met him in in 95 you know mm-hmm. and then he he skyrocketed to superstardom and i didn't yeah. and, it, and it i you know i have nothing against him but i just watched it and thought like I just don't understand what's he got that I don't. Yeah. You know? Exactly, it's not even like uh, maybe even if you're not chasing, you're just like, well, how did how did this work out? Just because you're curious, 
as a person like, uh, what did I misstep or is there something that I should be paying attention to or am I, am I actually any good? You know what I mean? So I think every producer will go through that to some extent and it's really easy to go through that when you're here in town all the time. Now, if you're in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, wherever in the United States, it's much more secluded. You don't have all these people in your ear telling you things. You're not hearing stuff. So you, oh, you're just like, well, I'm, I'm going to work on my music and, uh, you know, work whatever my shitty job is so I can keep working <laughs> on my music. And that's that. You know what I mean? And Yeah. Well, that's what's so for me. I think that my I'm just fortunate at this point. My shitty job is now my company. So my yeah. it, it, in a way it's like the it, it, it's the ideal solution for me. It frees me from the rat race of the music industry. Totally. But it's You're all so connected and um and I crazy things have happened because of that freedom. I think there's, there's something something was uh was let loose in my soul because because I'm not, because I don't care anymore. It's not that I don't care, but because I'm not chasing it, uh, now it's coming to me, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a really cool thing. Definitely. Well, I mean, let's let's talk about it for a minute. You know, you started the company, so you said from 2009 to 2013, roughly, you didn't come here. I'm assuming that's when you spent your time kind of putting everything together for the company, or was it um, well, long before that? No, long before. I um, I actually started. Um, when I was a teenager, I was already making techno and yeah. you know, whatever. But yeah, I, you're always a gear guy. You're yeah, doing and reviews and massive and stuff. Exactly. I so in uh, I guess like '93 or '92, I um, I met uh, the guys from Dropbase Network, and they they um, started to expose me to a lot more. I was already making music, and I I played this this uh, live show in the basement of an apartment mm-hmm. building. And there were like 25 people there, but they were two of the people. And uh, they left this, Patrick Spencer wrote, wrote this note and gave it to the girl whose house it was to give to me. And it just said, I'm, uh, I'm Patrick from Drop Bass. Here's my phone number. We need to talk. So, <laughs> yeah, so, nice. so, you know, at, at that point, then I started to go over to their house every week when the new records would come in. And he would say to me, uh, you hear this, this is a 303 or this is, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of thing. So that was the beginning of me getting into like specific synthesizers and this kind of, before that I had just junk, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a poly 800 and a HR 16 or something. So, um, I started to go around looking for old synths and drum machines and really mm-hmm. start collecting that stuff at that point. And in those days you could get all those things for pennies you know i yeah, I, yeah. You know, I bought that's what everybody says they're like well uh, this jupiter 8 i just got it for like 25 bucks or something yeah. well and i never got that good of a deal well yeah well, no, i got you know i got that. some that are pretty incredible i mean i, I bought a uh in in maybe 96 or so i bought a a, a putney you know a vcs3 mm-hmm. for 400 dollars <laughs> yeah <laughs> which now I mean, they're selling for like 15 exactly. grand <laughs> i mean well like what would you get for your for, how much was your first uh 909 do you remember? Uh, I've only ever had one 909. I bought it for $300 yeah. at Craft Keyboards in Milwaukee. Really? <laughs> so, I mean, that that's just it. Like, you, you've been doing it for a while. And I know, like, even when we booked you a few times in Minneapolis, you were like, yeah, I'm, I'm working on Buchla, doing repair and stuff. And- yeah, what happened was I, I 
back in those days, I met this guy who was 20 years older than me, and um, he was a, like an electrical engineer, but a, a synth nerd who had collected all these modulars that were vintage during mm-hmm. the time when they were really worthless. Like yeah. in the middle of the 80s, he bought um, a bunch of Buchla stuff, and he bought an eight-panel surge and uh, 2600 and all mm-hmm. the EML stuff. It was just like a, like a museum in his house. And um, then he showed me the synth that he was designing and he was in the process of prototyping. And so I just decided that he was now going to be my, like, uh, you know, creepy uncle or whatever. Mm-hmm. He was going to be my mentor. So I just invited myself over to his house, like, a couple times a week. And at that point, felt inspired because I was playing with electronics a little bit, but mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't feel like I could just make something. But after seeing him make something, then I thought, oh, I could do this. And then he would just ask as, act as my, um, like, sca- my like, safety hatch. Yeah. Anytime I got myself into a situation I couldn't figure out, like I started to build something and it didn't work, I could just bring it to him and he'd figure it out. Mm-hmm. And he was, at that time, fixing pretty much all of the vintage Buchlas that were out there because okay. there are only like maybe 30 systems of 200 series because they were as expensive as a house yeah. when they were in in the early 70s like yeah. $35,000 you know ridiculous so <clears throat> he um he had them and I got I got to you know use his mm-hmm. and was around him fixing them all the time and I got to know more and more about electronics and got better with the stuff and then it reached a point where he um I I came back from while I was in Germany I was like playing around with electronics still building my own DIY stuff and on the like uh, forums like for electronics nerds music mm-hmm. electronics and when I came back from from Germany when I was uh, moved to New York in 2003 around that time um, he just didn't want to do those, those repairs anymore um, he'd gotten arthritis in his hands and he just he just wasn't at a point where he wanted to deal with it anymore so he started to pass all of that repair work to me. So pretty rapidly, I developed this client base of like, you know, superstars and like yeah. rich people. <laughs> then I was starting to make you were like, now the go-to guy. Yeah. So and then I started to make custom parts that would work in Buchla systems, and I made them for the Chemical Brothers and for uh, like wow. Nine Inch Nails and whatever like right away. So. um over the next like 10 years I was doing that and I, mm-hmm. I had a blog, um, which I guess technically I still have it, but I haven't been very, uh, <laughs> yeah, I haven't done a uh, post in about a year, but, um, called Buchla tech where I realized some of these modules, there were only five of them ever made. So I think a lot of people would be really fascinated to see what it looks like inside or yeah. you know, talk about it a little bit. So when I get anything to repair it, I'd take pictures on the inside and like write about what was wrong with it and you know the stories that uh, that led up to them being made. And I got Documenting to know the whole process. Yeah, and I, I got to know um, Don Buchla and some of the like people who were working for him mm-hmm. then, and, um, and his son got to know him a little bit. And um, so I became like deeply in, in invested in that scene. And then I started to go to the Nam show just. Because I thought it'd be fun to see what was coming out, you know, yeah, was, gear nerd stuff. When I was a kid, you know, I'd obsess over the Nam issue uh, of keyboard or mm-hmm. whatever. So I started going, and at that point, I realized for the first time that I was like a synthesizer celebrity of some kind. You know, like, You're like whoa, I, <laughs> I was in the um, 
in the, the like synthesizer super booth and people were coming up to me to talk to me about like projects that I'd done that they saw on my blog or like things that they learned about me from like synth DIY. And the funniest part of all was that very little overlap happens. Like people who knew me from electronics didn't know that I ever made any music. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. So this was complete. Well, I mean really the, the, the modular Euro rack crowd, whatever you want to call it, a lot of them have no clue what's going on in dance music at all. It's it's like its own thing almost. It's just people who like to tinker. It's a lot of guys who are into electronics and absolutely. It it kind of got to be that um, I felt obligated to do performances using the stuff because uh, even people who liked techno who also liked modulars didn't think that you mm. could do those two together. Yeah. You know, like dealers of mine that. Like uh, in Detroit, when I, I played at the No Way Back party, the the guy from Detroit Modular, Dan, came up and said, you know, I didn't know you could make this kind of music with these. And I'm like, you yeah. sell these. You That's what, well, you know, <laughs> nobody really, because a lot of people, they just kind of like make crazy patches with random noises. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're having fun. But, you know, yeah, unless you're going out, you're not seeing that this can be applied, especially live. I mean, you're doing it. You got Surgeon and Blavon, you know, Karen, those guys, uh, Paul Burke. And there's a lot of people that are really taking the modular on the road now and, and really going to town on it live. And I think, you know, from what I gather, I haven't got to work on your whole system at once yet. But it seems like the gist is it's, you can, it's kind of more structured so you can play it live. Is that correct? Or is it well, just... I, I yes. I mean, the important thing in my mind, what I'm always preaching when I do talks at like trade shows or whatever stuff is that the most important thing that I drew from my experience with the Buchla stuff is that the product, the instruments should be interface driven. So Mm -hmm. you should figure out what you want to do Mm -hmm. and then sketch up what that would look like, how the Mm -hmm. controls would be or whatever, and then figure out the electronics later. And because of that's the opposite of, Almost everybody in electro in yeah. you know electronic music stuff usually they labor over a circuit design and then once they have something that works then they say okay how do we make a, a module out of this and so it's just like randomly throw five knobs and four jacks up there yeah with with that being the opposite like I think that by making something that's interface driven then then I'm freed to make um, an instrument and not a tool. Like something, yeah. that, something that actually is intended to inspire music making mm-hmm. rather than um, to show off how complicated it can be. Yeah, I think that's kind of where a lot of people are kind of losing the, uh, losing the plot in the modular world because they get really complicated things going like... Um, I'm trying to the Is it IntelliGel? There's the Metropolis sequencer. Mm-hmm. That thing's incredible. But at the same time, I'm thinking, well, unless you're chopping it up and throwing a sampler later, it's almost unusable. Well, it's a danger in the modular world. It's so easy to get lost and never actually make any music, like just Mm -hmm. tinker around. And and there's nothing wrong with that. I think the vast majority of the the users or the customers, really, of, of modulars are thinking it's basically like sitting in the corner. And they come home from work and unwind by by playing with it for a while, totally. and they never hit record ever. Just make yeah, patches just and just play with it, and 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 then move on. And and 
not that I'm trying to say that that's a bad thing, but I'm trying to present the the alternative, which is to make something that's more akin to what like what I'm used to. Maybe I can make the device that is what I dreamed of having when I was starting out, you know, buying all these old exactly. things. Because we would say, you know, you, you know why, why do we have to buy all these old things? Well, the reason is because nobody would make something that was like appropriate for <laughs> what yeah. we were trying to do. And, um, and uh, Sonic State did a, 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 an interview with Alessandro Cretini about what his um, rig on the road with Nine Inch Nails Yeah, I was. watched that. And he said the best thing ever, which was that my system was 50% Bukla, 50% Techno. Yeah, and, totally. That's, that was what everybody took away from it, Yeah, basically. and I mean, I didn't tell him to say that. I mean, he's my friend, but he, he, I feel like he really nailed it. And yeah. he, um, he, was able, he told me that he was able to, to see all of, of my personality and my um, style of, do, of working in there he knew like what i was trying to do with each of the the parts and that's great yeah i mean you know and he's i mean yeah he you know because he didn't really start off as a kind of a keyboard guy when he tried out he was he wasn't trying to play guitar or something he'll he'll probably kill me if he hears this podcast but he came to america to um to to go to the guitar institute because he was a shredder yeah. Like, a, like a metal shredder. Totally. And he was actually hired into Nine Inch Nails as a guitar player, but he more or less never played guitar for them. He yeah. really rapidly got into the synth stuff and jumped into the modular stuff pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Once he was, and he, he's got a great grasp of it. And the thing is... Well, there aren't a lot... I feel like there aren't a lot of people who are musicians who are technical enough to, that's to, 100% use, true. to use the, the synths. Like... It, you tend to see one or the other, and he's a really great example of somebody who has both of those disciplines really well mm-hmm. and can you know, seamlessly work with these instruments and, totally. and, and make it. Yeah, and you know, so I find it impressive because you know Alessandro's still he's in the he's really interested in techno right now. You know, I was talking to him the other night at uh, Berlin Atonal, and he was you know talking about some of the artists that are coming up. And while he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't know anything about Derek May or Kevin Saunderson or anything, nor do I think he cares. But the fact that he can sit down with your module or your module system and say this is 50% Buchla and 50% Techno is pretty impressive considering the guy is kind of new to Techno. That well, means that, like, it's painfully obvious. I think that I mean? there's, like, a, a, a folk art, like, a, a fascinating element. Of, he, he's coming into Techno totally blind and... What he's like, what he's coming up with, is great because he's so not like from the history. Like yeah. we're we're carrying around all this baggage of like you know trying to make something uh, something that's as good as totally. um, you know whatever, like, whatever big yeah track like uh, you know Knights of the Jaguar or whatever you know he's like he's just like mm-hmm. a, you know an innocent and actually that that was even funnier when um, last night I was introducing him to mad mike <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah. it was, well it was a hilarious situation because alessandro and i decided we we went into the modular room and we decided we should just go over there and patch something up so we're up there and we're like just getting started and and then dimitri uh from tresor said mark 
um, this is Mike Banks. And I was like wearing an underground resistance uh, t-shirt. And I was like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. And, and he said, no, no, you're cool. Nice to meet you. And then I, you know, I said, uh, Alessandro, this is Mike. And he, and he was like, I'm mad. Mike said, I'm a really big fan of yours. And I don't think Alessandro knew who he was. You know? <laughs> He's just like, yeah, cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, you know, he's a big supporter of the company. It seems like there's a lot of people that are really supportive, which is great. And even not, you know, they weren't just like the old boys club, like your friends that are backing you up. These are people who have either been into it or, you know, they're new. And, you know, this is genuine support for your products. I mean, they sound great. I only got to play with a couple of modules. They look fucking awesome. They're some of the coolest looking modules on the market. Thank period. You. So yeah, my mind has been blown by some of the people who came out of the woodwork, like from you know people I I've known for a long time but hadn't mm-hmm. heard from in a while. Like Christian Vogel emailed me about it, mm-hmm. and um, Terrence Fixmer. He said that he saw the name, and then he thought, "Is that the guy that I used to hang out with in Berlin?" <laughs> I, yeah. He lived here the same time yeah. I did, and you know, uh, like. Uh, Brendan from, uh, you know, uh, BMG, like Brendan yep. from Ectomorph, he, um, he told me that Carl Craig recommended it to him. Really? And Carl, and I was like, what? And then he, Carl said that Moritz von Oswald recommended it to him. So, and I was freaking out, you know, these are like, you know, the, the heaviest oh, of yeah. hitters, you know? <laughs> You're just like, I don't even know what to do right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, at this point, you know, the, the company's going well. Is it one of those things where you where you were smart about it, where it's not too overwhelming, like the business has grown at a rate, or, you, or is it something that like you're are you comfortable with keeping up with it, or is it blowing up beyond what you ever imagined? Or well, we uh, we were really I don't want to say lucky. I I think we made a really good choice, which was that um, after a year of of doing business and it going, I mean the the popularity was we hit the ground running mm-hmm. and we were really like having, having success. And we, I decided to invest into the manufacturing equipment. So mm-hmm. we set up a factory in New York where we, we have a pick and place machine. Oh, so you're not even outsourcing. You're exactly. doing it all in house. So wow. that was a pretty hefty investment. And most people that, that I knew told me, yeah, you're crazy. You shouldn't do this. You have any idea how hard this is going to be? That I would have said the same thing, but we hit it out of the park because now we've, it, you know, we have our own factory. It costs, it, we're not like, you know, sending the, the, the all of the work mm-hmm. to somebody else and paying them. We have a couple, uh, my girlfriend, Sonia, runs the company with me and she does well, the majority of the like hard work, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the stuff with the like sales and the bookkeeping and the, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Um, and then we have a couple of other guys who, who come in to do assembly work with us. And we're in a tiny, tiny space because it's New York and it costs a fortune. Mm-hmm. But um, we're, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. But really the biggest problem is that now I'm gone for, you know, at least a week every month to some other place to do this business. Mm-hmm. Not, and so now I try to like, when I'm going somewhere, like throwing a gig, like as sure, part of make it, it kind of all work. Yeah. And it's all compounding now. We're like, um, you know, like coming for this trip, really it, I'm here to play at the festival. Mm-hmm. But while I'm here to play at the festival, I'm, uh, tomorrow night I'm doing, uh, they're doing this thing where they have one guy, 
doing a, a patch each yeah, day. Yeah, they got the, James Saya there tonight. Yeah, and... so uh, tomorrow I'm doing that. Okay. And, um, and also, the, the, uh, you know, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Van Oswalt, the, mm-hmm. the nephew of Moritz. Like, I know of him. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he's actually the organizer of the festival. So okay. He, um, but he was already a user of, of, some, of some of our stuff, and, and I met him um, in New York, and then it turned out he was going to, to the festival in Detroit, and he was going to Mutech. And so we spent like three weeks like, seeing each other mm-hmm. all over the place and got to be really good friends. And, and he also then said, I really want to have a complete system of, of your modules. So I brought over with me the system I'm using is actually going to be his. Wow. After, I'm leaving it with him. That's and, awesome. Um, so, you know, it's all kind of tied in. We're like, you know, uh, we're in a nice place where we're able to, to combine our synth nerd stuff with our techno nerd stuff with the whole thing and play some shows and do kind some of the demos. Best of both and, worlds, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually really refreshing. And I'm, I'm happier with the way that things are going for me right now. Mm-hmm. I'm happier with it than I've ever been. You know, that's even, awesome. Even in the the best moments of my music making career, I never, I never felt like it was working as well as I wanted it to, or whatever. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a special thing because not only are you making music right now that, as you said, you really enjoy. You don't feel like you have to do it to chase the dollar or anything. So you got that going, which is a great feeling on its own, and. Not only are you, is it your job that you're working for, but you own the company for something that you really enjoy. And that's, uh, yeah. that's huge. Most people can't say they can even have one thing, much less two things at once, you know? So, Absolutely. That's awesome. But, I mean, so with the company now, and I guess you don't have to answer this if you don't want to because maybe there's maybe it is in the works, but do you ever see anything like beyond modules for gear? Or Well, inevitably, the... The marketplace is going to change. I mean, there's a big boom for, for modular right now. But mm-hmm. in, in the same way that people didn't care about modulars a few years ago, and now they do, they'll probably go back to not caring about them again at some point. That's when I'm going to buy them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, but I think the things will change over time. And, it, and um, an interesting thing about, like, one another interesting thing that Alessandro said even last night he was saying it is that he really likes systems that are one designer. Like, you know, he likes to have the whole system of my modules and the make noise shared Mm -hmm. system. And he likes them to be that way because they're like a closed package and they're, they work together in a certain way. You get the idea. I mean, it's uh... and a lot of people are saying stuff like that. So I feel like there is a little bit of, of motion away from total modularity. I think you can already see that. I, yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if down the road a year or two we're making stuff that isn't modular. I mean, in a sense, my my design expertise is in analog stuff. I'm not mm-hmm. a programmer, so I'm focused on that kind of thing. But there's nothing to stop me from making like a complete mono synth or a I don't know. Like I'm hoping that that it, it doesn't continue in. I hope that the market pressure doesn't doesn't push me to just make like um, more versions of what's already there. I mean, I would like to try to move toward things that are new ideas. Yeah, I mean it, that makes sense to me. I mean, 
I don't know, maybe it's, uh, you know, since my knowledge actually of, of building electronic stuff is nothing, maybe it sounds stupid, but like maybe you can envision like the idea of a drum machine that's, you know, heavily based on, I don't know, West Coast synthesis or, you know what I mean? Like just these sounds that like kind of atypical because nowadays everybody views a drum machine as it's got to have the clap or the, the hi-hat, like I have the analog rhythm in the other room. And as much as it's great, it still is chasing after organic drums. And maybe you see something where you can do like a machine that's conga-based, but it's only, you know, synth, yeah. you know, or I don't well, know. Well, I mean, that, yeah, I think that this is what, I, what I'm imagining too, is, is rather than try to compete for who can make the, the most fat um like a Moog low pass filter, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't feel like the world will continue to need that. I think yeah. that the, that the world would need interesting new ideas. And you see, you see a lot of that in software, like new ways mm-hmm. of approaching something, a totally different paradigm, you know, like something it's, weird. It's easier with programming though, I think, you know? Yeah. Well, but programming is hard. I mean, it's, oh, not, I'm the, not, I'm not yeah. saying that, but, it's easy to like, let's say, rip up a loop and change it up in the transposition five different ways. To try and do that with hardware is incredibly difficult. That's you know? totally true. But, but also, I mean, that applies even in the context of hardware. Like, it, in Eurorack you see a lot of manufacturers that are very focused on DSP or microcontroller-driven mm-hmm. designs. And if you look at something like. Um, like a reverb is a good example. So like uh, Make Noise put out this uh, herb verb, and Tom Herb is a brilliant programmer. Mm-hmm. He did the sound hack stuff before he was doing these things with, with uh, Make Noise. Well, I am fascinated by hardware reverbs. It's like a, a, an obsession of mine. I have all these Ursa Major hardware yeah. units. I mean, if, if you've heard my music, I'm a fiend for reverb. So, But in order for me... The way that I design stuff, doing everything hardware, in order for me to make a reverb, it would cost like two thousand yeah. dollars for the module because there are so many parts in it. If if you're a programmer, you can do it with one chip. So yeah. it's it's just a, a different kind of thing to approach. Uh, you know, analog and not necessarily even analog. I mean, I do design with digital, but I do it with discrete logic chips. I don't do yeah. programming. Yeah, I mean, reverb is um, it's incredibly scientific and complicated. You know, I, I have like uh, even on the cheaper, well, it's still really expensive, but you like the the Eventide Space, the Strymon pedals. I bought those, and some people that don't necessarily know much about making music or hardware, just kind of random people. I explain like, oh, you know, these can range from three to five hundred dollars. Like, holy shit, just for some reverb sound. And it's like, well, what they don't realize is that in the seventies. You know, uh, an EMT 250, which was, you know, the first really like, mm-hmm. significant digital reverb, w- was like, you know, $20,000. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, not, not only is it that, but it's always, tradi- yeah, it's traditionally been expensive. And, uh, you know, the thing, I'm, I don't like to get it in the software versus hardware debate because there's a lot of different views on it. But what, in my opinion, I can say effects pedals especially more on reverb i've noticed definitely a different character in the hardware as opposed to like a you know the vst version of it yeah and well that's that's a hard thing to to quantify 
It is, and that's why I don't like to push it so much. But I, I feel like when I spent the money that it was the right choice for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we're not talking about as much. I mean, like again, you can think of those as, as expensive, but you, really compared to what it would have been, I mean, it's a huge amount of opportunity out there for low amounts of money. Exactly. Um, and the, those Strymon pedals are amazing. There, yeah, I mean, I you know, I just kind of got on the bandwagon with those this winter. I got a couple of them, and of course, because they're pricey, so I'm not buying up a bunch. But now I want them all. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's really hands-on. It's good design. They sound great. And, yeah, I got nothing bad to say about them, really. I don't have a, a, an eventide space, but I have, like, a, a an embarrassing collection of uh, of old eventide units. I, yeah. I joked with, uh, with my you got friends. got the 8,000? No, no, I have a, I have uh, a 1745 delay, which was their first like major delay, and it's ridiculous. It's like five rack spaces. Um, but I have uh, a nine, two nine tens, a nine four, uh, 949, two nine sixty nines, uh, an H three thousand S, a DSP forty five hundred. Um, I think that's it. <laughs> And when did you? When's the last time you got to turn any of them on? Well, the, the problem is that I um, I'm a tech, so I buy like you know I'm on eBay constantly looking for like you know Eventide as is or, yeah, or like yeah, exactly Eventide needs it. whatever. Yeah. So then I end up with like you know a, a harmonizer for like a hundred fifty dollars that maybe I can fix it in fifteen minutes and then it's like you know working again. But the those early ones are really hard to work on because. Um, you know, it's a ton of electronics in order mm-hmm. to do what is ultimately like a fairly simple effect, but it was so hard to do it with the technology that they had. But do they, do they I mean, are the transistors and parts, are they easy to get a hold of these days or? Um, well, there are like companies that specialize in like, uh, like leftover lots of, you know, like vintage parts. And you, so no, none of those, those logic chips are, are the whole families are pretty much like out of production but you can get them from like you know surplus dealers gotcha so you know i guess we're getting to the point where we're talking about you know the companies here and the future of the company you just put out a record on bunker um so you're doing music again what's the what's the future for new music then is it just kind of whenever it happens it happens or yeah kind of i mean the I mean, quite honestly, Brian had to like twist my arm to get me to to deliver music to him. For mm-hmm. he he was planning to start the label, and uh, I've been playing at the bunker parties since they were basically since he started. Like yeah. I think I did my first one with him in two thousand three or something. And he's always been really supportive of everything that I'm doing, and he he nags me a little bit, but like in the most positive way about how. I should be doing more or, you know, I should really try this or that or whatever. So he mentioned to me right about the time that, that, well, he mentioned to me before that, that he was thinking about starting the label and that he was like kind of shopping around for some tracks and asking Mm -hmm. people they could send something over to him. And then he launched the label basically the same time that I launched the synth brand. And he was like, come on, I asked you for some music way before I started this and now I'm like putting out records from other people you know like basically I could have been one of the first 
couple yeah. if I would have delivered something. But then he had to nag me for like another year. And finally, you know, I, I was like, well, how, you know, what do you think of this or like that? And I, I didn't really want to make, I didn't want to make a bunker record. I, I don't mean that to be insulting. I mean, I didn't want to. They're pretty psychedelic. I didn't want to listen to the music he was putting out and make music that sounded like that. I just, I don't like you just that. just wanted to do you. Yeah, and he, he really empowered me to just do what I wanted. And one of the things that he said was, you know, I'll put out a record that is all just ambient if you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. he was like, do what you want. He's like, in, in my dreams, one side will be like analog, like acid uh, modular, and the other side will be like noise. He's like, mm-hmm. just do, do what you want. So, you know, I sent some stuff over and he was like, yeah, I don't know. And like, oh, you're like, come on, yeah. man. <laughs> so then a few months passed, and then I sent over. I, I made some like, m- like ambient kind of stuff or atmospheric, mm-hmm. more drone. I don't know if you listen to the. I, yeah, I've heard it. And he he was like, "Yes, I'm so excited about this." And by the way, those three tracks that you sent me in in April, I've been playing them, and they're killing. Them. Every time I play them, they're like mm-hmm. people are asking me what they are, and I'm like. What are you saying? And he's like, "Yeah, so we'll put those out too." And I'm like, "The ones you rejected?" <laughs> like, That's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I- I'm really happy to be a part of it, and he he's helped me out with like some bookings. Now he's like ac- yeah. actually listing me as like on his roster, and he got me the gig in Berghain. And he That's you know, awesome. I mean, it's a great um, I don't want to say company, but collective to be a part of. You know, I mean, it's a uh, it's widely renowned as a very like tastemakers collective. You got, uh, you know, everybody that was in New York or Detroit. Those guys like Derek and Mike, and then Donato Dazi's been on there. Adam TM, um, you know, everybody that's in there is really regarded as a very credible DJ or producer. So he, yeah, I, I think that Brian's maybe one of the most important people in like in the whole thing because. He's certainly the only one who matters in New York, as far as I'm concerned, like for promoters or mm-hmm. what. I mean, it's just like a night and day difference between what he does and what anybody else mm-hmm. in this stuff does. And um, he also is, yeah, he's like, a, he's like the king, the, the, the gatekeeper to America for a lot of these uh, European guys like Adam or, um, or, you know, some of the... I don't know, I'm blanking right Donato now. Donato yeah, 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 for yeah. example. Yeah, uh, they, you know, are absolutely reliant on him to, yeah. really, to, to, you know, make anything happen over there. And, and I mean, Adam, TM, I mean, they're the hardest working man in show business, you know. Totally. <laughs> he, I mean, the guy, he, I, I saw uh, at Mutech, he did this really cool talk about what uh, Resident Advisor put it on, mm-hmm. where he broke down, uh, what he's using, like equipment to do the Adam, uh, Adam TM shows, mm-hmm. which are combination video and and uh, live act uh, of audio. He explained how he's doing it and showed all different things, what gear and everything. It was really cool. And in that talk, he he casually mentioned that I'm well. I'm always working at least twelve hours a day on music. It's insane, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, that's how you make like. 30 records a year. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, when I when I get into it, I'm doing 12 hours a day, too. But, like, that's... He's Always? consistent. He no, also I'm, plays, like, 200 I'll gigs a year. I'll do that, like, year. one or two weeks a year. You yeah. know what I mean? The rest, it's... 
you know, maybe nothing. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the thing is, is he makes so much stuff too. Like he can do, uh, you know, ambient music. He can. I I heard him play with Tobias in Detroit, and that was a really cool psychedelic, pretty yeah. heavy set techno set, and yeah. So yeah, it's it's really cool. Uh, but anyway, you're right. Being in involved with with um, the bunker crew is is great it's it's you know uh, uh, it's perfect for me right now because these all well not the european guys but like mm-hmm. derek and and um and eric and um and brian like these guys are friends of mine for a really yeah. long time now so you know it's also nice to be around them you know like to be around brian and Ceza in berlin is funny to me you know because he's here to play the festival yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of a random thing, you know, when I, when, uh, well, there was kind of like this wave of us guys that really started coming to Europe on a regular basis around 2007, eight. that's like, you know, the droid guys, uh, Mo and, and David and them and Kyle Geiger and myself. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm, s- it's really weird to see these guys in Europe because they're people, you know, from back home and they're friends, but now you're, it's like, you're almost on a vacation together of sorts. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's cool to be with your friends somewhere else on the other side of the planet, and you kind of got this thing that you're all kind of working towards, and it's happening. And uh, I yeah. mean, now everybody really lives over here, so that is kind of worn off. But it's a cool thing. Yeah. Well. Well, right. I mean, New York basically doesn't have anybody left. It's like everybody, <laughs> everybody who yeah. is in the like bunker crew. It's like Brian and and me are the only ones left because the you know all these other guys moved over here, but. um and who knows, maybe I'll be back here soon. You, you know? never know. I mean, the thing is, is while it's expensive, it's still affordable, or at least a business right off if you're here, say, three months a year or something to kind of go around Europe, check on the shops, do a couple of shows, uh, you know? Yeah, and actually now it's like it's getting to be inevitable that I'm here three, four times a year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, our, with our distribution here in Berlin, it's naturally for the for the synth business like our home base in europe Mm -hmm. where also i have all this connection to it's it was funny for me when i came back after you know not coming for a few years that i came to berlin and i lived in a completely different like circle of people and a completely different like life Mm -hmm. than when i was coming here only for techno you know (laughs) it was really fun so well let's see it's it's getting that time. It's almost time to go back to the festival. So I think I'm going to wrap it up here. Is there anything you want to mention that people should look out for or anything like that? or um, Any dates coming up? or? Uh, oh, well, um, one interesting thing for the... If anybody listening actually is in, in New York or like in the area, um, in October, we're doing... Uh, we're, my company, together with the Control, the the synth yeah. store in Brooklyn, are putting together a, a music or a, a synthesizer festival thing with a, like a trade fair or like expo during the day in Bushwick, and also we're putting together a performances at night and nice. so synth nerd event um, in October. So. That's and I'm going to script the date, but it's like around the 19th of October, like so that weekend. I'm sure if they if they hit up Facebook, it'll be popping up. Yeah, we're, it's called Machines in Music. Machines in Music. Yeah. Do you know who's performing yet, or you can't? It's, I can't say can't yet because I have a few that are unconfirmed. But fair um, enough. 
But the, also a fun thing about it is that the Sunday following it, we're having what we call a wind down, which we're just getting uh, a bar to like let us run the music, and we're we're doing more or less like an open mic of modular synth music. So the whole day is just going to be like drone and noise and. I think that's a cool thing, you know. So um, I'm actually, you know, because there's synth nerd meetups or whatever they call them, like. But there's now there's not they're, really they're much, in every city now. Yeah, they're, but there's not really like a, a quote unquote open mic sort of thing for synth noodling. Well, in, initially we were planning to just have the Saturday uh, fair during the day and the um, the performances that night. It would just be like three or four performers, and then we started to get. The companies, were, when they were uh, signing up to, you know, get a table for the fair, some of them asked, well, can I perform? And then we started getting messages from, from just people who were going to attend yeah. asking if they could be on the performance. Then we thought, and somebody said, is there going to be any kind of like open mic, whatever? And then I, I was like, you know what? Actually, I hated that idea originally, but now it's starting to live. And I think that that might be the more interesting thing. Yeah, no, it, it also it's you got it also creates a um it stimulates the whole scene or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? The in a way, you know what I mean? It gives people another reason to I mean, you don't want to Yeah, but when also when these guys if they sent over like a link to SoundCloud and they said, "Can you check out this music I make? Maybe you'd consider me for the performance." I got kind of like an icky feeling and I uh, I, yeah. I wanted as soon as I I came to the point where I thought why don't we let everybody who who offers play You're like no let's curate this by not curating this i mm-hmm. that's when it really started to mean something to me because then no longer are we like gatekeeping it and trying to say what's valid and what's not like why don't we just show the whole point of the event is to increase awareness about synthesizers not to like promote someone's career you know totally like, so i think that it keeps a playing field level again without yeah and it's so much you know, like we were talking about before when people are asking us, like, well, how do you get started? And they, you know, pe- people seem to think that, like, if you have put out records, it's because, like, they found you. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, like you were just sitting, you know, sitting in your uh, apartment in Minneapolis and someone came and knocked on your door and said, hey, you want to release on drum code? You know, it's yeah, like, exactly. doesn't work that way, you know? Exactly. You, you got to bust your ass for a really long time and you got to, like, always just, like, keep offering yourself and, like, trying to make those connections and, you know, get yourself out there. And, you know, that's the way that it works. So it, it's cool if we can give a, a, an, an opportunity to somebody to, you know, be exposed what they're doing for the first time. That's great. It's exciting too. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, we both played so long ago, you more so than me, like almost forget what it's like to kind of get up there. And even if it's just noodling on a synth, be like, whoa, there's, doesn't matter if five people are watching. It's a crazy feeling. Well, yeah, definitely. Well, when you said about the having to drink whiskey in order to, to do yeah. the, the, the boiler the room. Boiler room <laughs> it made me think. I played this um, a few years ago. I played at this thing they called the Original Warehouse Acid Party in Amsterdam. And there were 6,000 people in one room. Mm-hmm. And the other people on the lineup were like Danny Rampling and... Um, Mark Moore from S Express. It was like all like guys way older than me who were really, really big names. Mm-hmm. So there I was to do this like acid live act in front of 6,000 people. And I thought, you know, they're offering me drinks. And I was like, no, no, I better not. I really need to be on my best here. And 
uh, I had a bottle or a can of like bubbly water and a cup. So I stood up on the stage before it was about to like get started, and I I tried to pour the can of water into, oh, no. into the it went glass. everywhere. And my right? hands were shaking so much that I couldn't. Yeah. I was like, "Oh man, maybe it would have been better if I did. If I had some drinks." Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, like I said, the camera is what gets me. I don't. I don't have the. Uh, the shakes so much or anything like that anymore with the things but sometimes they're like do you know anything i'm like yeah three shots and they're like who else i'm like no they're for me <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah. <laughs> anyway let's wrap it up uh thanks for coming on and uh all thanks the best for having me. Yeah, all right fine. man